0: Hey there. Ben Tobb Hospital is a publicly funded safety net hospital in Houston, Texas. The majority of patients don't have insurance of any kind. Dr. Ricardo Nuila has been working at Ben Tobb since he was an intern, a medical student. He took me on a tour. Started here and
1: you know literally I just did not want to leave here because I just just really enjoyed my job here.
0: He's just published a book called The People's Hospital. It's not just a love letter to the place, it's a pitch. And the pitch is Not only is this place way, way cheaper than what we're used to, in many ways, it's better. And it's a model, a real alternative to what we're used to. So when I ask him to pick one patient story from the book to tell, he picks a patient he calls Stephen, a restaurant manager, a Republican, a guy who did not expect to end up here. But he had a giant lump on the side of his throat and his insurance didn't cover much.
1: He paid cash up front to get seen in a local ER. Finally... There was a doctor who had seen a CAT scan and said, you have tonsillar cancer. However, you don't have insurance.
0: Tonsillar cancer, cancer of the tonsils that landed hard. So did the however.
1: He felt shitty that somebody could tell you cancer, but there's nothing that we're going to do about it because of your of how much. And
0: Yeah, it's like it's too painful or too obvious to finish the sentence because of your insurance. Somebody tells Stephen to try the public hospital, Ben Tobb, and he expects the worst. But that's not what he finds.
1: He comes to love this place. This is like so Stephen, but he gives gift cards to the people greeting at the door because they're nice and they do their job well because they make his day. And it's not just that he likes the people at the door. He feels like he got really good health care and that he also thought that the price was extremely reasonable.
0: Stephen lost his insurance when he got too sick to work and he doesn't qualify for Medicaid. He owns a house, he's got savings. Texas has really stringent Medicaid restrictions. So he's paying out of pocket.
1: Is his final bill is pennies of what he thought he would pay. Stephen's dad had
0: gotten radiation treatment for cancer and the sticker price was $700,000. Stephen had gotten radiation and chemo and surgery and he'd been hospitalized for a good while. And his bill was 32,378 bucks, real money for sure, but he can pay it. And it's less than 5% of his dad's bill for much less extensive treatment.
1: And the healthcare is really good. And so he's almost proud that he's
0: had this experience. Steven's become a convert. And as Ricardo Nuilo walks me into a conference room, it's clear he hopes his book is gonna create more converts.
1: you start to see this model and, and it makes you think can can things be different in healthcare where I think that that's an option but we as a country haven't thought about that seriously, you know. And if it seems politically
0: unimaginable that we could have anything like this around the country, an effective, efficient, cheap, publicly funded healthcare system. Well, the idea that Houston could have one that was one's pretty unlikely too. In fact, the story of how Ben Tob got here that may be the most surprising story in Ricardo Nuila's whole book. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about why healthcare costs so freaking much and what we can maybe do about it. I'm Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So our job on this show is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing parts of American life and bring you a show that's entertaining, and empowering and useful. Ben Taub Hospital sits at the edge of the Texas Medical Center. That's a giant neighborhood full of hospitals and medical schools, including some of the best in the country, like the M.D. Anderson Cancer Center. In his book, Ricardo Nuila writes about how some patients at Ben Taub can see from their rooms the gleaming buildings of Ben Taub's neighbors. So when I visit, I make him show me the view. We look out from a stairwell at a glass tower, M.D. Anderson's Sheikh Zayed building.
1: That's glamorous, right? You get a glimpse into the rest of the medical center here. And Bentob sticks out, I feel like, because it's it's brick versus glass. But as Ricardo Nuila makes clear in his book, this unglamorous
0: brick building gets the job done. In addition to Steven, there's Ebony, whose complicated pregnancy, there's a lot of vaginal bleeding, gets tracked more precisely than it would elsewhere. Like at other hospitals, nurses eyeball the pads that absorb that blood and note heavy, medium, or light bleeding – at Ben Taub, they've adopted an innovative approach, weighing each pad to get an exact measurement. Another patient, Christian, has bounced around other systems without anybody accurately diagnosing the dire kidney problems that have kept him in pain for years because he didn't have good insurance, wasn't worth anybody's time. At Ben Taub, insurance isn't an obstacle.
1: We organize things, which is basically, okay, we need to focus on your kidneys right now and we need to get you to see a geneticist. And both of those things happened.
0: They not only diagnose Christian, they get him on a form of dialysis. He can manage himself at home. It's cheaper and delivers better quality of life for him. Everything at Ben Taub is cheaper. The system spends about a third as much per patient as the national average. In part, that may be because nobody earns million dollar salaries here, but Ricardo Nuela makes the case over and over again that they take the time because they have it to make wise use of resources. They don't have as many MRI machines as other hospitals. But guess what? A lot of patients don't need MRIs. But Ben Taub can't meet every need. One patient, Hieronimo, needs a liver transplant, and that requires resources the hospital just doesn't have. But Ricardo Nuila and his colleagues put a lot of time into wrenching Hironimo back onto Medicaid so he can get the transplant somewhere else. They rope in a congressman to get it done. Geronimo tells his mom, it feels so important. Everyone treats me like I'm rich.
1: That's what I think a lot of people really want is just the sense that The person who's responsible for your care is thinking through the problem with you and aware that you are not having a great day and wants to deal with that situation with you. And I just felt like this environment allowed me to, like, have those moments. So who pays for this environment? It may be cheaper, but it isn't free. Some
0: patients are on Medicaid. Some are on Medicare. Some have private insurance. But the majority don't have any insurance at all. Some, like Stephen, pay cash. And a lot of the rest, about a third of Ben Taub's patients, are treated for free. The bulk of Ben Taub's funding comes from a special property tax in Harris County, where Houston's located. It funds a whole system called Harris Health, Ben Taub, a second hospital, and a bunch of clinics. And of course, none of this has always existed. In fact, it's only here, like this, because of a really wild story with two big characters, one of whom wasn't even from Houston. He was a writer I'd never heard of, a Dutch guy named Jan de Hartog.
1: Jan de Hartog was one of the most amazing people that you could read about. He was a Nazi resistance fighter, Dutch ship captain. And while he was
0: hiding out in Denmark during the war, in between saving a few Jewish babies and running war missions in his tugboat, he wrote a romantic dramedy that later became a Broadway hit and then got adapted into a Broadway musical called I Do, I Do, which Broadway musical nerds in the house starred Mary Martin and Robert Preston, you know, the music man, and had a song your mom might still remember.
2: My cup, My cup right is over Where the love
0: Yeah, so interesting guy, and in the early 1960s he came to Houston to teach playwriting at a local university. It was a big time for him. He just gotten married for the third time, but this one was for keeps and become a Quaker. And when he and his
1: wife Marjorie come to Houston, they find that there's all these whisperings about this charity hospital in town in Houston about how how awful the conditions are. Whisperings were that children in the maternity ward would cry all night for a lack of milk. And so as part of his faith, he decides that he needs to volunteer there. When De Hartog
0: writes about the hospital later, he describes the experience of walking in for the first time as literally mind-boggling. He's like, I know what a hospital smells like. Disinfectant. Maybe some fresh laundry. And I know what a slaughterhouse smells like. Blood and shit. And the smell here is slaughterhouse. And as he looks around, The sights are something
1: else too. The conditions are atrocious. He sees a cockroach crawling into the tracheostomy of like a patient. He sees like people sitting in their own filth. He and Marjorie do
0: not quit, they stick around. And then they recruit a dozen Quakers and a few society ladies to come volunteer with them and get the Red Cross to train them. And it's nuts. This is a rich city. The zoo is air conditioned. Not this hospital, though. And he starts to catch on why it's so horrible. Number one is racism. The hospital serves mostly black and brown patients. When Jan and Marjorie start volunteering, the other volunteers are all society ladies, and the whole program is set up so they don't touch patients. DeHartog later says he asks why. and The volunteer coordinator says, Southern ladies can't have physical contact with black people. But she doesn't say black people. She uses the N-word. When he asks staff why public officials don't do something about the rotten conditions, they say, what politician going to stick up for black people? The N-word comes up again. And Dehartog does not make this particular connection, but it seems pretty on the nose. The hospital itself is named after Jefferson Davis, who led the Confederacy in the Civil War. But there's also a political mechanism for institutionalizing this neglect without ever having to acknowledge the role of racism. And that's this. No one particular political entity, no one particular political leader is responsible for the public hospital financially. The city of Houston and Harris County are each supposed to kick in half. So it doesn't belong to either of them. Here's De Hartog describing that city-county dynamic in a lecture he gave many years later.
2: And they were continuously at each other's throats. The one said, you don't pay enough. The other said, but you don't. And it went back and forth.
0: The top official for Harris County actually has the title county judge. At that time, this was a guy named Bill Elliott. And you can hear in this clip from a local newscast, he wasn't exactly reaching for the bill. Here he is explaining why some problem with the hospital is actually the city's fault.
2: And it's absolutely ridiculous to say that this is a responsibility and this is the fault of Harris County.
0: And the city? At least one council member is calling for a budget cut, which really pisses DeHartog off. And DeHartog actually loves the city of Houston. It's an exciting place. It's booming.
1: It's growing super fast. And it's not just an oil town. Houston at that time was the home
2: of NASA. All right, Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Future manned spaceflight missions to the moon and perhaps the planets will be commanded from this control room of the Mission Control Center at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center, 22 miles southeast of Houston, Texas.
1: It had built the Astrodome.
0: It was the city of the future. The Astrodome, you know, a sports stadium with air conditioning.
2: A fully enclosed building, large enough for any sport, convention, show, or conclave, with constant temperature and humidity, independent of outside weather.
0: CBS News does a report about the booming city, NASA, the oil wealth, the Astrodome. And DeHartog is a main character talking about how much he loves the town.
2: It is a city of unlimited opportunities. It's an immensely exciting town. And you feel that anything is possible.
0: The CBS report wraps up with Walter Cronkite talking about how everybody in town is absolutely nuts about football.
2: Their brand of football is like their brand of city and brand of life. Play wide open. Take a chance. Try anything once. Above all, do it with zest and do it big.
0: Oh, and there's this other thing Houston is really becoming known for. Cutting edge medicine. For 20 years at this point, the city had been building the Texas Medical Center, that giant campus where more than a dozen hospitals and med schools now operate right on top of
1: each other. Houston is a really deeply medical city. And at that time, they're all working on extraordinary things.
0: In 1964, while Jan de Hartog is witnessing the suffering at the Charity Hospital, Dr. Michael DeBakey is performing the world's first coronary artery bypass at a private hospital in town. But the Houston medical establishment, they're not allies here. Jefferson Davis Hospital on the outskirts of town was about to be replaced by a new building in the Texas Medical Center, but the Medical Society, the local doctors association, had not wanted the charity hospital as a neighbor. They'd actually put up a ballot initiative to keep the new building at the old site.
2: You, the taxpayer, will pay the extra cost. That's why your doctor recommends you vote for the new hospital to remain at its present site.
0: It hadn't worked. But along with the budget cuts, officials were now talking about delaying the charity hospital's move to the new building. De Hartog and his friends smelled a rat. They were thinking the powers that be are actually going to sell the new building in the medical center to some other hospital that wants in. I mean, this was a public conversation.
2: There had been offers to buy it, and they wanted to wait for the highest bidder.
1: He writes a series of op-eds for the Houston Chronicle that start to get press, not just in Houston, but around the country, and in fact, around the world. The De Hartog describes the awful things he's
0: seen, and he appeals to Houstonians' sense of pride in their you know, bustling, futuristic city, a city he loves too. Here's how his first op-ed ends.
2: I cannot believe that it is the will of the citizens of Houston that our growing medical center rightly becoming famous all over the world, shall be allowed to harbor the cancerous sore of man's inhumanity to man. It would turn the entire center, planned as Houston's glory, into Houston's shame.
0: Just that first op-ed made a lot of noise.
2: The bomb exploded, and the national magazines and newspapers and TV Zeroed in on the hospital to find out what was going on.
0: And immediately the hospital does get to move into its new home in the medical center. But the funding issue is not solved. So de Hartog keeps on pushing. He writes a book called The Hospital. He goes to churches around town, synagogues, everywhere he can, recruiting hundreds of volunteers. But there's no political progress. And conditions at the hospital actually get worse. Key nurses get burned out and quit. Things go to hell. In a harrowing diary entry, De Hartog writes about full bedpans left on tables next to trays of food, about a patient crying out for help and hearing back, shut up.
2: Never before had I realized to this extent the depths of our damnation. And at that deepest moment of desperation, when we knew nothing could be done, nothing would change for the simple reason that those who had the fate of the hospital in their hands were not there. Mayor Welsh didn't work there. Commissioner Bill Elliott, judge, the county judge, did not work there.
0: But then there's a turn. Somebody shows up. That's right after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is produced in partnership with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit newsroom about healthcare in America. KHN is not affiliated with the giant healthcare player Kaiser Permanente. We'll have more information about KHN at the end of this episode. So Yanda Hartog's slugging away. He gives a talk at a Baptist church. He reads that diary entry, the one with the bedpans, and the absence of Judge Elliott and other leaders. And at first he thinks uh, I didn't go over so big here. Nobody even raises their hand to volunteer.
2: And then it happens. When we were about to leave, a man turned up with a baby on his hip who said, uh, <clears throat> do you train people at night?
0: And the guy seems to be like looking around, trying to make sure nobody's listening. And Dehartak tells the guy, yeah, we could do that. He
2: said, I mean, at dead of night, without anybody seeing.
0: And De Hartog's like, uh, yeah, sure, I guess. Uh, why, though? He
2: said, well, I'm Judge Elliott. Judge Elliott, the county
0: judge, probably the most powerful politician in town. That's who wants to volunteer in secret without anybody seeing. He says to De Hartog,
2: I cannot do it as a judge, but I must do it as a man. And that was the moment that the whole damn thing changed.
1: Because Judge Bill Elliott followed through. He trains himself in a clandestine manner to be an orderly at night. Then he verifies everything that DeHartog has said.
0: DeHartog actually oversees the judge's final practical exam, where Bill Elliott tends to an African American man named Willie Small.
2: So the judge, with his thermometer, went and put his hand on Willie's shoulder and said, Mr. Small, sir, I'd like to take your temperature. To hear that, to hear a Southern judge say, Mr. Small, sir.
0: It was a symbolic moment. The judge had to touch, had to defer to a black man. So not only had the judge now seen everything, he took responsibility for what he'd seen. There's a proposal for a countywide property tax to fund what's called a hospital district. Now there's a referendum. And Elliot backs it all the way.
2: And we all waited with bated breaths for the outcome, and it was no.
0: Yeah, the referendum fails. And as De Hartog tells it, once it does, a real backlash starts to build. It gets personal.
2: Those who had resented our presence from the very beginning became vocal. Margie and I were called communists.
1: De Hartog just would not flinch. He and his wife's lives were threatened. Also, someone threw a bag of excrement at their door.
0: Eventually, DeHartog says the Red Cross, which was training and supervising volunteers at the hospital, came to him and Marjorie and said, it might be better for us if if you left town for a while. So they did for more than 20 years. They went on all kinds of adventures. Meanwhile, Bill Elliott kept pushing, kept pulling in allies, including eventually the medical society. He
1: rallies them to get behind
0: it. He gets the question on the ballot again later that same year, and it passes in November 1965 a big moment.
1: What's also interesting is that it's forgotten. Something that I've gleaned from all this is that people will forget and you have to remind them.
0: And while we're reminding ourselves, it's worth noting in 1965, the whole country is making some big commitments to health care for a lot of people. President Lyndon Johnson signs Medicare and Medicaid into law in July of that year. It's probably also worth noting that Medicare and Medicaid helped make Ben Taub possible. About a third of the hospital's patients are on one or the other. It's a minority of patients, but it's many millions of dollars of funding. The 1960s were a notoriously divisive time. So is this. And Ricardo Nuila does not ignore today's political polarization or how that polarization makes it hard to imagine a national conversation about creating a different healthcare system or the role that doctors have historically played in resisting that conversation. It's part of his story, his family's story. And in a book about a place where a lot of sad things do happen, this may be the toughest one.
1: Well, I was born into a family of doctors and my dad in many ways was a hero to me. And I saw how much pride he took in his work of being a doctor.
0: But over time, as insurance companies got tougher to deal with, the business side of running a medical practice looked a lot less appealing.
1: He had to hire more and more staff. He hired his mother, my grandmother, who is the type of person not to back down from Chicago, you know? And so her job was to be on the insurance companies to make sure that they wouldn't screw him out of money.
0: And his dad turned away patients who didn't have insurance and growled and grumbled about insurance companies and about patients who didn't have money to pay. When Ricardo finished college and got into medical school, he put off starting for two years. What he was seeing as his dad's life in the business of healthcare. Was not appealing.
1: The grind wears on him, you know. The fighting with the insurance
0: companies. I mean, in the book, your dad is a bit of a stand-in for yeah. for doctoring as profession and the way in which doctors get alienated from medicine.
1: Yeah, he is a stand-in a bit for doctors, and it's going to be. I think the doctors have a lot to say about how healthcare goes in America, and unfortunately, the history shows that they haven't been a great piece of that, as, at least as far as universal healthcare is concerned.
0: This becomes part of Ricardo's story with his dad. Dad invites him to form a family practice. Ricardo chooses Ben Taub. And over the years, it becomes clear. They're on opposite sides of a political divide. There are painful conversations, and then they go months without
1: speaking. That's how deep politics run, you know? It's really difficult. When you overlay, like, politics onto a family dynamic, (laughs) it just felt like he was, like, totally on board with this idea that Healthcare is something that is earned, and if you can't afford it, you don't deserve it, is what I heard from what he was saying.
0: Is your dad an ideal reader of the book? Is your dad kind of who, the person you
1: want to make that case to? That's really interesting. I would say this, that I did not write this to preach to the choir, for sure. But he's not sure his dad would actually pick up a book like this. It's just because I know my dad. He, My dad's the type of person who reads John Grisham on a beach, you know, so I'm not 100% sure if he would pick up this book, you know? Unless, say, his son wrote it. Ricardo
0: does expect his dad to read The People's Hospital. And even if his dad doesn't agree with everything his son has written, Ricardo thinks he'll be proud.
1: I can tell you now, as a a father, it's not clear that your kids are going to come out okay, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so, He has reason to be proud just because I'm a a living and breathing person right now, you know, and I'm working as a doctor, so I feel good for him. (laughs) I really do. I mean, it's it's not easy being a parent. And I think that he's probably very happy that I wrote about medicine because he loves medicine.
0: The last chapter of the
1: People's Hospital is called
0: Faith. And in it, Ricardo Nuila describes a daily ritual he says keeps him grounded. It starts with passing a plaque on his way in. So, of course, I have him show it to me. I park
1: like right over there. I come in here and I just look at look at this every time and so
0: and describe what we're seeing here.
1: Well, we're seeing a plaque that talks about when this hospital was founded and the people who constructed the building and there's also the I forgot. This is this is bad of me, but I forgot the name the, 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 snake, the snake around this Yeah, I forget the name of it. I'm 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 in big trouble now because I'm on like Caduceus. Caduceus. I it's the Caduceus, yeah. So it's a reminder, you know that we have this structure in place. And that,
0: and that people decided to put this building here. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's a community effort.
0: Ricardo Nuila writes, he sees that community as he walks from that plaque to his desk, all the co-workers in every kind of job doing their best. And this is the faith that he says gets affirmed. I'm reading from the book here. He writes, if someone is suffering and there's capacity within the community to help in a way that doesn't harm anyone else, then we not only owe it to that person, we owe it to ourselves to help. Whatever your politics are, I think that's pretty great. Ricardo Nuila practices at Ben Taub Hospital. He's associate professor of medicine, medical ethics, and health policy at Baylor College of Medicine. His book is called The People's Hospital. Honestly, there's a lot in this book more patient stories, more family stories, a very deft summary of a hundred years of healthcare economics and politics. Reading this book, I was reminded of an idea I've had before that it might be cool to someday convene a kind of arm and a leg book club. Because I'd like to have someone to talk with about a book like this, like maybe you. Right now, that's just an idea. I mean, the how would take a lot of figuring out. But I'm curious how that idea sounds to you. You can let me know at armandalegshow.com slash contact. And of course, that's always a good place to send ideas and stories and questions. So many of our best episodes come from you. And right now, I'm curious what you think about this virtual book club idea. If you've taken part in something like this or helped organize it, I'd love to hear how it went. That's com slash contact. Next time on an arm and a leg, a woman named Lisa French asked her hospital what her surgery was gonna cost her. They said, With your insurance, about 1300 bucks. They expected about 55,000 more from insurance. They got 75,000, but then they wanted more. $229,000 more. They wanted it from Lisa French, and they sued her for it. And after eight years, the case finally got resolved last June. Lisa French won. This case has a lot to teach us about our legal rights. That's next time on An Arm and a Leg. Till then, take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, with help from Emily Pizocreda and edited by Affie Yellow Duke recording of Jan De Hartog's lecture is courtesy of the Baylor College of Medicine Archives. The audio of Bill Elliott is from the KHOU-TV newscast, thanks to the Texas Archive of the Moving Image. Big thanks to the archivists that helped us find some of the tape for this episode. That includes Emily Vinson at the University of Houston Library, Matt Richardson and Sandra Yates at the Texas Medical Center Archives, and David Olmos the Baylor College of Medicine Archives. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raimunda is our audio wizard. Our music is by Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. Gabrielle Healy is our managing editor for Audience. She edits the First Aid Kit newsletter. Bea Bosco is our consulting director of operations. Sarah Ballama is our operations manager. This season of an arm and a leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America, An editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. KHN is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, the 20th century industrialist, Henry J. Kaiser. When he died, he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Appetizer. Zach Dyer is senior audio producer at KHN. He's editorial liaison to this show, Thanks to Public Narrative. That's a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. And finally, thanks to everybody who supports this show financially. If you haven't yet, we'd love for you to join us. The place for that is armandalegshow.com support. Thank you.